Welcome one and all to the Book and Film Globe podcast. I am your host, Neil Pollock, the greatest living American writer and the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. And we bring you this podcast nearly every week for your entertainment and edification. This week, we're going to talk to contributor Chris Lights about The Peripheral, which is a new show on Amazon Prime um, that is a successful adaptation of the work of novelist William Gibson, a sci-fi novelist who previously has defied quality adaptation. And we're also going to talk to Paula Schaefer about two unsuccessful recent sitcoms on streaming services, Blockbuster on Netflix and Reboot on Hulu, both of which fall way short of what they should be. But first, we're going to talk to Stephen Garrett, our film critic, about The Menu, which is a food industry satire slash horror movie that is in theaters now. That's on The Menu first, and we'll be right back with that. I've never seen a movie trailer as many times as I have seen the trailer for The Menu, which is open now, finally in theater, so I no longer have to see the trailer for The Menu. I actually saw the movie, The Menu, um, as I'm talking last night. Uh, Stephen Garrett is here with me, uh, reporting from the field. Um, he saw The Menu, um, I don't know, it's one of his many glamorous film festival jaunts, right? Uh, well, Toronto. Toronto, well, that's the least, but, the least yeah, glamorous yeah. of the locales. It was you saw it. In, <laughs> you saw it in Canada. I saw it in Austin. Um, okay, so the menu. Um, you know, the, the trailer. I don't know how many times you saw the trailer, Stephen. Um, but I guess you saw it a lot. I saw it a lot. Every single time I went to the movies, no matter what it was, I saw the trailer for the menu. Except for before Black Panther: Wakanda Forever. I guess they figured the. You know that that was that was a lot of superhero and action movie trailers, which I. Which I <laughs> the kind of trailers I prefer watching. You know, the thing is, the trailer for the menu pretty much gives away the entire premise of the movie, which is that a bunch of uh, rich foodies yeah. go to a private island where there's a fancy restaurant run by a crazy chef played by Ray Fiennes. Um, and then he proceeds to put them on the menu, basically. I mean, there's no surprise there. Like, that's in the trailer. And the thing is that the movie doesn't do any – doesn't offer anything be, be, other than that. Like, all, all, a lot of the best lines are in the trailer. There's no real twists or surprises um, in the movie oh, that well, offered up in the trailer. It's I kind of – no. I mean, I, I think I, – you're not wrong. The trailer really does give away the game. Um, but I was – I actually was kind of surprised, uh, and I don't disagree. Like, I, I, thinking about it now, I guess I did see the trailer a lot. I think I saw it early enough that I, like, I, I just toned out the trailer, I guess, or didn't see it as much, or I'm not too sure. Oh, but movie. You I guess I was surprised by the trailer. What must that be like? <laughs> <laughs> I try not to see, I try to come 20 minutes late to movies so I can just see the movie, you know? I am Margo. So, um,. <laughs> So, yeah, I hope you. I hope you intro this segment with like that trailer. I am Margo. So you know the. Thing <laughs> is, I was surprised by Ray Fine's backstory. I, I, there was a little bit more to it for me that I didn't wasn't expecting. You know, and the connection that he and Margo have, which is hinted at in the trailer, is a little more interesting. And I think the 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 class conflict stuff is certainly uh, kind of fleshed out. 
Um, not that it isn't in the trailer, but it's it's not as cartoonish. It's still pretty broad, but you know. Anyway, so I, I was I actually liked it more than I thought. I was not looking forward to seeing it because everything had been given away in the trailer. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I liked it kind of less than I wanted to. I, I felt like a lot of the satire was pretty obvious. Um, you know, there's a lot. There's been yeah. a lot. There's been a lot of this like we must kill all the rich people stuff in theaters lately. I mean, I you know this movie works as a, as a companion piece to Triangle of Sadness. Um, which yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's a double feature. Very, double, exactly, double feature. Very similar themes. And a much, Triangle of Sadness is a much better movie, I think. You know, it, The Menu is kind of like a, a like a exploitative grindhouse satire, basically. Like Saw with, <laughs> Saw with food, you know? And it's like, you know, there's a TV show, The White, <clears throat> the White Lotus, which I talk about a lot on this show, and I've even brought up with you has similar themes, you know, that the, the rich, yeah. rich tourists are, are basically evil conquistadors. And there, there's a lot of truth to that. Um, and we've all been in that position where we've kind of been on vacation or at a restaurant and felt kind of uncomfortable about our conspicuous consumption. Right. Um, so yeah. the, the genre of, of a movie and TV show is welcome. I just feel like the menu was like, Kind of like getting hit in the face, you know, with a, with a platter over and over again. Well, it's funny you mentioned, of course, Triangle of Sadness. And I think in your review, you were talking about how, like, the, the weakness of the movie is how kind of smug and self-satisfied it is. And it, 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 it misses the opportunity to maybe go deeper into some of its themes and make them more, I don't know, if not profound, then a, a little more moving or memorable. And I think the menu is kind of guilty of the same thing. Well, and you know, the thing is, like, the ma your main character in Triangle of Sadness at the end was the Filipina maid who kind of takes over the island um, at the end, and the main character of the venue is definitely Ray Fine's chef character, and I just felt like the tri in Triangle of Sadness, that, that Filipina character was a lot more um, humanized and sympathetic, and an actual working-class person, whereas I felt like the working-class people in the menu were, um, were, like, were like robots, almost. Yeah, no, they were, absolutely. Yeah, no, that's a good point. They, they were weird. I mean, they were almost like a cult, you know, which maybe they kind of were. They were like a cult, yeah, they all live in this bunkhouse on the island, and they work 20 hours a day, and yes, yeah, so, okay, maybe they were, but there was no fleshing. I mean, there was Hong Chow plays, um, plays Ray Fine's, uh, you know, maitre d', uh, his, his sous chef, whatever, his number two, um, but even she, like, and she gets a lot of screen time, but and, and she's quite good, but she's not you don't know anything about her like why is she there what is she doing there you know what is she what is she doing um and you know and the thing about Anya Taylor-Joy's characters Anya Taylor-Joy is you know always fills the screen right she's very watchable um and very I find yeah yes right but she's compelling but you know this character is like I mean I don't want to give away too much but she's basically like a hooker with a heart of gold hot hooker with a heart of gold, who's also smart and sardonic and likes to eat cheeseburgers. And I'm like, right. I'm like, Oh, <laughs> oh I, I'm guessing some men wrote this character. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And she, does she, does she get, is she the cool girl? <laughs> like gone girl says, does she like to watch football too on a Sunday? You know, just like put yeah. on a jersey yeah. and hang out with her man, eat cheeseburgers and like disdain foodie culture. She's like, come on. And the Nicholas Holt character, that guy's a, that's a weird, he's a weird character. Weird one. He is a weird one. I mean, that's the thing. It, it, it goes 
from satire to just kind of just unbelievable. Like characters don't act that way. Like I get the point that this is like beyond reality and not meant to be. Um, you know that it is a satire, but at a certain point, you're like, this is just implausible. People don't act this way. He's like a foodie incel. <laughs> Exactly right. He doesn't care about sex. He just like all. He's just he's so obsessed with luxury food that like he he he, he welcomes he welcomes his fate. And that's the thing is like all these yeah. characters. I feel like a lot of them just kind of like we're like oh well okay we're bad yeah, yeah. we deserve. Well, there's no fighting. I mean. You talk about how Anya Taylor-Troy is a, is a character written by men, and I feel like most of the rich characters here are written by people who are not rich and are just kind of making up these broad caricatures of what a rich person would say and do. Or who, and then again, or with who the, are rich and just aren't getting it right. Well, and, and, and then the uh, back in the kitchen, you know, it's not like an episode of The Bear, aside from the Yes Chef, you know, nonsense, but you don't get a sense of anybody who wrote any of these characters ever worked in a kitchen. Like they may have sat down and talked to a chef for an hour. Yeah. And, Dom, and Dominique it, Crenn, it doesn't feel as lived in. And Dominique Crenn, who's arguably the world's greatest chef did design the dishes. So they look like real fancy restaurant food, but you know, yeah, that, the bear is a good comparison, right? Because that's a, that's just such a great show um, about life in a restaurant. And those are, those people are real. And I mean, yes, they have a full season. Real. No, they're yeah. real. They're fully yeah. realized, you know, they're, the, the, the exploitation is made clear, but you get a sense of why they're obsessed and what their motivations are. And, you know, and the menu is, is kind of like a, a, a cartoon, you know, like a, like a horror movie satire cartoon. And I, and I feel like it's a way for like smug foodies who are guilty of some of the same crimes that Nicholas Holt's character commits can sort of, sort of sit there and like, you know, snap their fingers and nod along and say, yes, yes, I get it, I get it. Uh, so wait, so have we concluded that this is basically a cross between the White Lotus and the Bear, but done in two hours and produced basically uh, with all the subtle and nuance of a, uh, a Blumhouse, Blumhouse film? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's <laughs> we'll, we'll, throw, we'll throw in Triangle of Sadness too. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, if you hate fancy food, you hate rich people, see this movie. Yeah, it's a genre. It's it's a it's a genre of our time, and it's worth it's worth talking about and worth covering. But you know, let's not let. Well, I was just going to say, I I, I want to give it props for for being a satire that then turns into a thriller that then turns into a horror movie, and I mean, it, it is blending a lot of genres in a way that I thought actually worked quite well and was kind of fun to watch. You know, and it's a comedy still. You know? Yeah, and you know, like I said, like it, it, you know, it's like a it's a B movie. That's the thing. It's really like yeah, it is. A B movie masquerading as art, <laughs> which is this is fine. It's fine. It's like I don't hate I don't hate the menu, but I would definitely like watch season. I will definitely watch season two of The Bear well before I would ever go back to uh, ordering off the menu, so to speak. <laughs> yes, agreed. Yes. Agreed. All right. Happy Thanksgiving. Yes, chef. We'll talk. <laughs> The work of sci-fi novelist William Gibson has been notoriously hard to adapt for movies and for TV, but we have what could be called the first successful William Gibson adaptation currently airing 
on Amazon Prime. It's called The Peripheral, and it stars Chloe Grace Moretz and a bunch of other people. And Chris Lights, a uh, contributor to Book and Film Globe, wrote a piece about it uh, on the site. Hello, Chris. Hello, Neil. Hello. So, yes, you're – I'm not a Gibson. I mean, I've read some William Gibson, but you're you're a big fan. So, yeah. Uh, so I can't speak to whether or not this is a successful adaptation, but you seem to think that it is. I think it is, yes. Uh, this is the first one. What, what the, makes it work? Uh, well, it's smart sci-fi. They, <clears throat> there's a lot of points where they could lead the viewer along and give you background on the world and info dump on you, and they don't do that generally. They avoid it, which is very rare in uh, Hollywood today. And that's something Gibson does. If you read the book, he dumps you in at the deep end with no explanation. And the, the show sort of does that too. It's a little easier transition, but it, I think it does let people in at the deep end where some guy is sitting on a bench and he's watching the Battle of Trafalgar. And then this weird little girl comes and talks to him, you know, and you have to sort of piece it together from there. And they, they give you, you know, enough roadmaps that it helps, but it's not the clunky fist of info dump that most i think sci-fi does today and to some extent fantasy there's not you know? there's not a lot of exposition there were you know i watched a couple episodes of this and there is definitely some explainy going on i mean at, at a certain point you have to set up the terms of the world or else sure. it's not going to make sense it's not sure. like some kind of, it's not like a work of surrealist art or anything no no but it's it it saves the explanation for a while which I don't think most things as soon as they introduce a weird science fiction-y subject like time travel or, you know, multiple world theories or whatever, they immediately explain it. They, they, this waits a while. I like that. That's part of the reason the adaptation is good. It's also, you know, it's a quality crew, Lisa Joy, Jonathan Nolan, uh, Vincenzo Natale, Scott M. Smith. Uh, you know, I, I think yeah. it, 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 it's smart people that, that are writers themselves that, didn't totally screw up a William Gibson adaptation. Yeah, it has a, it has a sort of a literary feel to it. Um, so yeah, you mentioned time travel and multiple worlds theories, multiple timelines. So there is sort of a multiverse vibe going on. There is some time travel. There's also this being William Gibson. There's kind of a cyber. He coined the term cyberspace. I mean, that's dated right. at this. There is like there's like virtual reality. Right. Uh, I, there's ideas about how we will, how it will evolve and how we'll exploit it and how it will exploit people. That's all in there as well. So the, the premise is you've got the, this, this brother and sister living in rural North Carolina, uh, Flynn and Burton. And uh, Burton is kind of a, an ex-vet, is a vet of some sort of war. Um, and uh, But his sister, Flynn, is the one who's really good at jacking into video games and winning money for the family, basically. She's the actual talent. And someone sends him some kind of device that he plugs into her, and she it basically allows her to mentally time jump into 60, 70 years into the future. And they have these... The future people in this future timeline create these sort of androids that look like the people who are jumping into them. They're called peripherals, and then then the sort of mentality of the people can kind of act through these, right. these shells. It's like it's the ultimate extension of virtual reality, where you can't distinguish 
reality from the virtual anymore, you know, because you're in a false body, but you can feel everything that's going on. And somehow you've been <clears throat> cast into the future through data transfer, you know, so if you look some, at all those- some, some version of the future, I mean, this future is like a, it's like a, it's a post-apocalyptic future. Basically. Yeah. You mentioned him coining cyberspace. He also, in this book and the show, they use the term jackpot. And I think that that might, go down as the bigger term he coins once the effects of what you know he calls the jackpot start piling on on us and they're already you know beginning to the environmental collapse and superstorms and whatever and we had the yes I mean, I mean you know it's it's science fiction though i mean it's not like what he describes as you know the jackpot involves like wars and the climate uh, change and you know it involves the extinction of 80 percent of humanity and i um for one am skeptical that 80 percent of the human race oh yeah i don't think he thinks that 80 percent of the human race is going to disappear either but if you're going to do um post-apocalyptic you gotta you know have some hard-hitting numbers and stuff in there i don't think he believes that that much is gonna you know go wrong but enough to where well it's not an optimistic vision of the future. Let's let's put it. No, that way. no. When he did Neuromancer, everybody said you wrote a dystopia, and he's like, I thought I was writing an optimistic piece because we didn't all die in a nuclear war. And, right. You know, that's. I think that's that's true. Your the apocalypse is the apocalypse is here. It's just not evenly distributed, which is a, a knockoff of a, a Gibson phrase. But, all right. Uh, so. Here's the, here's, the, here's the thing. I've only seen a couple episodes of the show. You right. know, you, it's, it's, as we're talking, it's five or six episodes in, so I'm not as well yeah. informed about it. And I haven't read the book, so I don't know much as much about it as you do. So, But as an outsider who's not a William Gibson um, fanatic and who is right. not uh, – and who doesn't know the material that well, I will say that I find I, – I like the sci-fi element. I, I, you know, there's good, some good action sequences. Uh, Chloe Grace Moretz is quite appealing. I find – the storyline set in rural North Carolina in 2030, it, I don't like a lot of those characters. I don't like a lot of the actors. Like it feels like sort of like, like the later bad seasons of True Blood in some ways. Like I, I just, I, I'm not into them at all. And I just, I, I just can't dig it. I also feel like I just don't like a lot of the actors in the future either like that. The main, her, Flynn's main handler, it's finding kind of mumbly and annoying. Um, yeah, his uh, his delivery, first of all, he's got the thick accent. He, he upped the accent for it. Um, I don't think he, I've seen him on an interview and his accent isn't quite as thick. And then he does that mumbly thing. I don't, yeah, that's not good. And then Lev is sometimes hard to understand, the klept guy. Yeah, and, so yeah. it's like, all right, so you've got main characters who are kind of hard, hard to understand. And the guy who plays her brother, you know, he looks the part and he certainly is handsome and beefy and you know like you but i just i there's a lot of vacant staring and i yeah. <laughs> i'm just not into it you know i but understand i, but I do it's it's not you know it's not, not a great. Show I, don't think it's great. Gonna... I don't think it's a bad show it's not but it's i don't uh, think it's i i would reserve my judgment until the final of the eight episodes but you may be right it may not be a great show but it has the potential i think to become a great show if it gets another season I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical because uh, the two of the people who created it created Westworld, and that that is a that show went that went off. That went off the rails. Yeah, definitively and epically went off the rails. And I have the same reservation. Uh, 
you know, we'll see what happens. I mean, they've got at least the structure of the book. If they stick to that, it's hard to go totally off the rails. I'm thinking if they get a season two, that might be where things get weird and there's more than two realities and more than two timelines and duplicates of, you know, all that kind of stuff that Gibson didn't get into. I could see that. I can almost, I, guarantee, I can almost guarantee that it will go off the rails, but, um, I, you know, that's what happens I, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't, but I wouldn't bet against that. That's what happens with TV. Even in this golden age of quality TV, shows can yeah. still spiral completely out of control. They can, uh, and, and quickly, too. They can quickly. But for now, but for now, let's just say the peripheral is a faithful and com at least competent adaptation of a William Gibson novel, yes. and that is something... It's a, good, it's a good show with the potential for greatness. Say, you know, All right. It's not going to change your life immediately, but... Most shows don't. No, no, no. There's a few. There's a few that have changed my life, mostly because I spend so much time watching them. Um, all right. Well, well, anyway, Chris, thank you so much. The Peripheral is airing on Amazon Prime. Uh, and, you know, whatever you do, you know, just, just be careful. You might wake up in an alternate reality where, where you're not reviewing TV shows. I don't know if you want to do that. I, yeah, that's pretty scary. Man. I don't know. If I, don't, if I can't review TV, what do I become? a good question. All right. Thanks, Chris. TV continues to boom in almost every genre, but one genre that is really struggling right now is the sitcom. It used to be those were the providence of TV networks, and they're not really anymore. Uh, streaming services are trying to do sitcoms right, and they're just uh, failing left and right. And uh, Paula Schaefer is here with me to talk about two recent streaming service sitcoms that just are missed the mark for different reasons and uh she's here now hello paula hey there yeah it it might even be an error to call these shows sitcoms because they're not funny yeah well exactly they do have situations though and they are technically comedies and that they're half an hour ish but yeah they're it's true that they're not they're not particularly funny um uh, we're talking about the first show we're talking about is reboot which is airing on hulu uh and the second one is blockbuster which ironically enough appears on Netflix. Now I feel like um you know the net I feel like the networks the TV networks are still the ones who are making sitcoms. You know Brooklyn Nine Nine was fairly recent and Abbott Elementary is currently airing on ABC and you know it's not a perfect show but it does uh, follow the network sitcom uh, template the modern network sitcom template I think pretty well. You know reboot and blockbuster. Uh, have uh, slightly different takes on it. Well, okay, let's let's start with reboot. This is a sitcom about making sitcoms. Essentially, um, the premise is that there's this um, early two thousands, late nineties cheesy family show called Step Right Up that gets rebooted by a um, young ish female screenwriter played by Rachel Bloom. She uh, her. Only credit to her name is a, is a movie from Sundance called Cunt Saw, which is a joke they keep repeating, even though it gets less and less funny every time they, they make the joke. Um, and it turns out that she's actually the daughter of the original creator of Step Right Up, and Step Right Up was a sort of a bodlerized version of her life, which is why she wants to make the show. Okay, decent enough premise. But then, you know, as you wrote in your review, Paul, and then I wrote, I also wrote a review, because I actually watched the whole season, you know, the show just gradually just 
kind of starts glamorizing itself instead of being a satire of sitcoms, right? Yeah, it can't decide. It never decides what the center of the show should be, so it can't ever build anything around that center. Yeah, and you know, sitcoms are. There's a lot of parody to be had for it. I mean, there's an episode of Documentary Now on IFC this season that relentlessly mocks the making uh, of a sitcom, and I have several other examples of you know good good sitcom parodies uh, that have appeared on TV, both in ter- sort of episodic shows. You know, and also in, um, you know, just sort of uh, sketch TV shows. I just feel like Reboot, you know, it just kind of sentimentalizes itself. There's, there's, there's a lot – a lot of it takes place in this writer's room. Paul Reiser plays the original creator of the show, and he brings in a Borscht Belt array of old Jewish sitcom writers. And then Rachel Bloom is his co-showrunner, and she has like a, a woke coalition of gay – women of color basically who are working on the show too. And they all get along great and they make a show, they make a show, they make magic, but there's nothing funny. They don't, you know, you don't see anything funny in the, in the sitcom. There's no irony in it. Everyone thinks that this cheesy sitcom reboot starring Judy Greer and Johnny Knoxville is just fabulous, you know, and oh my God, it's better than the old one. It's so much smarter and funnier. And I'm like, come on, really? I expected the situation of that comedy to be how hard it was to recapture that innocence and that feeling that people had where they would spend their Friday nights watching ABC with Family Matters and uh, what was, what was step it called? By yeah. Step by step. Step by step. Yeah. It had the word step in it also. Yeah. And just the 10 of us and all of those kind of classic full house, just like cheesy sentimental lovey-dovey and i thought it was going to kind of like deconstruct that and instead it just kind of it couldn't decide what it wanted to do with that at all yeah and it just you know there are i mean there are some funny moments there's some good quips in the writer's room and you know rachel bloom and paul reiser have excellent comic timing they're the keegan michael key plays the uh star of step right up who's like a yale drama school graduate they don't make much of that but there is a funny bit where he goes and plays basketball with a bunch of Jewish uh, teenagers and he um, accidentally breaks one of their noses and he says, does anyone know a doctor? And the, and the boys are all like, well, you can call my, my dad or my mom, my dad and my mom. You know, there's like, there's some funny, there, there's some occasionally, there's some funny stuff that, that made me laugh. Um, and the cast is all very game and, you know, all very competent, but it's just like, it just, it glamorized, it's created by Stephen Levitan. It was the guy who made Modern Family, a show that I continue to this day to despise and never made me laugh once. And I watched quite a bit of it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it was competent. It was like a – it was a uh, – of its time, a competent network sitcom. I don't understand why people liked it so much. It just wasn't good, you know. And it, it suffered Modern, – go ahead. Mo- Modern Family is a good show to put on in the background while you're doing other things. Nothing's going to really offend you. It's – okay to look at it just kind of chugs along and there's something about it that in the right mood it is watchable and does serve a purpose like it's fine at a doctor's office but that, uh, that's what i'm just gonna say if you're in the hospital waiting for somebody to have surgery yeah. modern family marathon not the worst thing no agreed but uh you know but it's 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 the problem with modern family is the same problem that plagues reboot and reboot doesn't have the network you know 22 episodes a season it's a it's a quality show 
And so the problem is it's just awash in its own privilege. Like these, these upper middle class to rich LA people don't have any problems. And I got the same vibe off a of reboot. You know, Stephen Levitan created the show and it's just like the writer's room is sacred. This is amazing. We're all in it together. And it just doesn't, I just don't buy it. And I really hope there's a lot of cliffhangers at the end of uh, season one. There's eight episodes and it ends with the, the characters all kind of sadly moving around through their various circumstances while a female sung almost acapella cover of everybody wants to rule the world plays. And I'm just like, where's the satire there? This is horrible. Who chose that? Fire that person immediately. Yeah. Smug isn't funny. Very offensive. Very offensive. All right. So that's reboot. Don't watch it. I'm trying to kill it. I'm personally on a one man, um, one man crusade to kill it. You know, it was, it was the irony is that Steven Levitan followed uh, the book and film globe account on Twitter after I ran that review and that, you know, that kind of thing doesn't usually, um, you know, I don't even think about that kind of thing usually, but I was just like, Oh shit. <laughs> I was pretty, cause I was pretty harsh. I was pretty, he's not used to anybody criticizing him. Yeah. He's like, Oh, okay. Maybe, maybe I'll hire this guy to be a staff writer. <laughs> it all started right here. It all started right here. I'm like, all right, Steven Levitan, you can be my sugar daddy. Anyway, so the other show, which I have not watched, so I'm going to let you talk about this more, is Blockbuster, which is airing on um, Netflix, which is ironic, right? Yeah, that's that's as deep as the comedy gets, right there. It's like because Netflix killed Blockbuster. I went in, I don't know why, expecting it to be set in the past, even just the somewhat recent past, but it's contemporary. That they, was the first puzzler It's not like high fidelity, right? They've got cell phones. Yeah, it's it's set right now. Uh, they have TikTok. They have they're you know talking about influencers and followers and everything, but also running a video store where they have like seven employees who seem to be there full time. Right, because in in Michigan, in, in rural, in small town Michigan. Yes. Yeah. So they have, they have, and so of course there's like a huge, huge customer base for them. Yeah. And, you know, I like Randall Park a lot. He's enjoyable. You know, he's just kind of a, a easygoing guy, but in his main, his character's name is Timmy. And this is the only job Timmy has had his whole life since he was like in high school or whatever. And there's never anything to explain why. Why is this character only here, only that, only this forever? And so there's no, there's nothing for the audience to understand why this is like, why this is this guy's passion, or like, is he in a state of arrested development? Is he oblivious? Like The Office, Michael Scott loves being a salesman. He loves Dunder Mifflin. He's proud to be a paper salesman, and he's oblivious to the fact that paper is kind of not a sexy or hot industry anymore. And we can buy it because Steve Carell sells it. And there's nothing here for Randall Park to sell us. It's just like somebody decided it somewhere, and there's like, okay, there were no, I feel like there were no questions asked. And somebody should have been asking questions when putting the show together. Like you said in your review, there is a show to be made about the last video rental store struggling to survive in a in a time when you can stream anything 
anytime for pretty cheap anywhere you want on any platform. I feel like the people who made this show don't remember what video stores were like. And they just thought, oh, it was just like an office, but in a video store. Well, they were applying the uh, Superstore model. When I say Superstore, I mean the TV show Superstore. You know, and Superstore was like this. uh, It was was like set in a Walmart or or Best Buy or something like that. And, you know, those are stores that actually do still exist with large, you know, employee bases. Um, So it made some sense for there to be for that to be like the setting of a workplace sitcom with some meet cute romances in it. It doesn't make sense for like, you know, hot Melissa Fumi. There's a lot of hot women working in, like a lot of hot women working in this video store. What the hell? Yeah. And like Melissa Fumero is, is such a talented, fun, like subtly funny person. And they've saddled her with this character who went to Harvard, but she's back working at the video store because that's the best job she ever had. Mm. Like what? Yeah. what? And there's some breakup with a boyfriend. Yeah, yeah, and and then also, if you really think about it, she's supposed to be the main love interest for Randall Park, and they met when she was in high school working there. But he's like ten years older than her, so was he a predator? Like, <laughs> also, also, what's Jamie Smoove doing in this show? Come on. Yeah, he's he's you know he's great. He's. I wish the show was about his party store and not about this video store. He, is a, he owns a party store? Yeah, it's called Party, 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 like Tony, Tony, Tony. Uh-huh. Um, I feel like I've seen that joke on Bob's Burgers uh, on the shop next door to, to the burger place. But does, At any point, does, does he tell Timmy, tap that ass? <laughs> like, a <laughs> curb your enthusiasm. I don't think so that i probably would have remembered that yeah yeah, yeah it's, it's hard it's hard to see uh jb smooth do anything including his uh commercial commercials for caesar sportsbook without thinking of leon leon yes. Black from curb your enthusiasm well yes I, okay so i guess like i guess what we should come back to here paul is like why what's going on why are sitcoms so bad i mean they're you know there's con- there's good uh humor in like televised dramas and there's you know genre shows of all kinds are booming and are doing quite well. Um, why are traditional comedies so weak? Is it, I feel like maybe it's because that it's, it's such a, a writer dependent um, genre and maybe comedy writers just aren't as funny as they used to be. I'm not sure. I mean, are we just not funny because of everything we've just gone through as a collective society? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> I haven't, and, I haven't left my house in five years. <laughs> yeah. All I do is watch TV. So um, it possibly, it's possible that there may not, there just may not be like a, um, a, a common baseline, you know, like for comedy, like, you know, in 1985, everyone thought Cheers was funny, pretty much. Um, yes. More or less. And I don't know if that's possible now. I don't know if there, if there's a show to be made that's going to appeal to um, woke, snooty blue staters and, and 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 red meat red staters alike. I'm not sure that that there might be there might be some action movie. I think people like Letter Kenny a lot, yeah. regardless Letter, of the background. Letter Kenny, well, you know, Schitt's Creek was pretty successful. I don't know how popular that was in red states, but that was a pretty successful old school sitcom. And let's not forget what I consider to be the funniest show on TV: uh, What We Do in the Shadows. Oh yes. 
you know, that, yeah. I, I, I don't know who the the viewers for that are, but I mean, it doesn't matter what your politics are. That 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 that's the best sitcom being made today, without question. Yeah, it's 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 fantastic, and I think that just with audiences being so fragmented now, I don't think there can be a to use the title of the show blockbuster anymore because it used to there used to be so little variety there were there were not a lot of choices if you didn't think cheers was funny you were just gonna sit in the dark i mean you had two other channels and then five other channels and now i feel like they just kind of throw out they're throwing you know the spaghetti at the cabinet to see if it will stick or not and all i know paula is that taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot Sometimes you want to go. Wouldn't you like to get away? All right, Paula, thanks so much for talking to me about uh, a couple of bad sitcoms. We'll talk at you soon. All right, thanks, Paula. Reboot and Blockbuster are on various streaming services now if you dare watch them and you feel like not laughing particularly much. Also, thanks to Chris Lights for talking to me about The Peripheral, now airing on Amazon Prime, and to Stephen Garrett, we're talking to me about The Menu, whose trailer can only be seen on YouTube now, but the movie is at last in theaters, opening wide, and soon probably will be on streaming services for you to enjoy or not enjoy, depending on your tastes. I am Neil Pollock. I am the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We publish great content nearly every day. We give you a great podcast nearly every week. We are always on the menu, and I hope you have a happy Thanksgiving Stay safe. Don't stay home. I will talk to you soon. You can buy the books discussed on the Book and Film Globe podcast at The Book House, Book and Film Globe's independent bookstore. Go to the Bookhouse Milburn, M-I-L-L-B-U-R-N.com to shop online and support small independent booksellers. Or visit our actual physical site in Milburn, New Jersey, where you can buy books from all the authors featured on The Dark Word and the Book and Film Globe podcasts. The Bookhouse Milburn dot com.